and welcome to another episode of Aminder. My name is Ellen Rowe, and I'll be your host today. This episode focuses on the latest findings in Alzheimer's disease blood biomarkers research, which covers abstracts from papers published in August 2020. These papers were clumped together based on the fact that they all focused on measuring something in the blood to either predict or diagnose Alzheimer's disease, making them blood biomarkers. In this episode, you'll hear about a range of analytes that were useful in diagnosing or predicting Alzheimer's disease. Some of these are the usual suspects of amyloid tau and neurodegeneration markers like neurofilament light, but we've also got some new ones on the roster. In this episode, you'll also hear about a new method and some big data papers that use gene expression data to identify new candidate blood biomarkers for AD. Definitely lots to unpack in this rapidly evolving field, so stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Before diving into the blood biomarkers papers from August 2020, I have a few things to mention. First off, I want to toss in a reminder that we include all published papers from peer-reviewed journals in our episodes, meaning that we don't make any judgment calls on the quality of the data in the papers that we summarize. As I'm sure many of you know, the peer review process isn't perfect, and some questionable things can get through. Since we don't delve into the full papers to generate the content for the podcast, and we mostly pull from the abstracts, it's really up to you to make a judgment call on the quality of the science. That being said, I make an effort to find out the sample size for nearly all of the papers that I cover to at least give you some context on the study to help you make a quick judgment call while you listen along. Another metric I try to report where I can find it is the AUC value for the biomarker or model in the study. If you aren't already familiar with biomarker work, AUC stands for Area Under the Curve, and this is a summary number used to describe the Receiver Operating Characteristic, or ROC, curves. These curves demonstrate how well a biomarker or model can discriminate between two groups, like patients with AD and healthy controls, and the best AUC value indicating a perfect discrimination would be 1. An AUC value close to 1, like over 0.8 for example, indicates that the model or biomarker in question is fairly good. So hopefully these metrics, the sample size and the AUC, will help you critically evaluate the studies that we present here. But, like I said, you should dive into the full paper to make your final judgment call. On that note, we do offer bibliographies along with our episodes, so you can easily find the papers that we talk about here. These used to be timestamped, but we're shifting to numbered bibliographies, so you'll hear me numbering each paper as I make my way through the episode, and that's how you can track each one down in our bibliography. You can find a link to the bibliography in the episode notes, or you can sign up to our mailing list to get access to them. Okay, so now that I've got all of that out of the way, on to the main event. From August 2020, we have 18 papers that we sorted into the blood biomarkers theme. Starting out with a classic biomarker, I'll be going over three papers that looked at tau, to some degree at least, as a blood biomarker. The first paper in this episode is titled Discriminative Accuracy of Plasma Phosphotau-217 for Alzheimer's Disease versus Other Neurodegenerative Disorders. This is by first author Palmquist and last author Hansen, published in JAMA. In the realm of tau biomarkers for AD, there's been a shift towards quantifying specific pathological phosphorylation sites on tau, 
since these seem to have better diagnostic capacity than total tau or general phosphorylated tau. You may have heard about PTAU 181 gaining traction as an AD biomarker, but this paper set out to evaluate the diagnostic ability of another phosphorylated tau species, PTAU 217, in the context of AD. This was a pretty big cross-sectional study using three different cohorts with a combined total of 1,400 participants. The study found that plasma PTAU217 outperformed other plasma biomarkers, including PTAU181 and neurofilament light, and it also outperformed MRI-based biomarkers for diagnosing AD with an AUC of 0.89 to 0.96. They also found that CSF measures of PTAU217 were not significantly better than plasma measures, which is great news because it's a lot easier to get plasma from a patient than it is to get CSF. Speaking of this, we cover a paper on CSF PTAU217 in our CSF biomarkers episode, so be sure to tune in to that episode if you're interested. But in this paper, they do a lot more data analysis, investigating correlations with different outcomes like tau pet positivity, and parsing apart results from each unique cohort. So definitely check it out for the full story. Overall though, results are promising, and although work still needs to be done to optimize the assay, it seems like we'll definitely be hearing more about PTAU217 in the coming months. Next up, the second paper in this episode looked at a classic AD biomarker panel, so total tau neurofilament light, also known as NFL, and glial fibrillary acidic protein, or GFAP, in a longitudinal cohort. This one is titled Remote Blood Biomarkers of Longitudinal Cognitive Outcomes in a Population Study. This is by first author Rajan and last author Evans, published in Annals of Neurology. This study looked at the longitudinal association of total tau neurofilament light and GFAP in a cohort of 1,323 participants who had periodic clinical evaluations for AD. Using a sensitive method called Single Molecule Array, or SAMOA, technology by the company Quanterix, they quantified these biomarkers in serum of the patients and found that higher concentrations in all of them were associated with the development of AD. Notably, they found time-specific associations with total tau levels having the best predictive capacity at 8 to 16 years prior to clinical AD diagnosis, compared to NFL and GFAP, which performed the best 4 to 8 years before diagnosis. They also found that these biomarker levels were associated with faster cognitive decline over the 16-year period, and that high baseline NFL and GFAP were associated with faster decline in cortical thickness. Overall, the authors suggest that in addition to their utility as predictive biomarkers, this serum panel may also provide insight into the AD pathology. So third on the roster today, we have another paper looking at tau, titled Plasma NT1 Tau is a Specific and Early Marker of Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Mengel and last author Walsh, published in Annals of Neurology again. This study assessed the ability of a tau assay called NT1 to discriminate between patients with AD and to predict disease progression. This name, NT1, refers to the fact that the assay specifically detects the N-terminal of tau, using a detection antibody that recognizes amino acids 6 to 13 on the protein. In the study, the authors and the founders of this assay compared the performance of NT1 to other tau assays measured on Quanterix and Roche platforms. They also evaluated the specificity of NT1 for AD compared to NFL, which is accepted to be a non-specific marker of neurodegeneration. 
In their prospective cohort of 175 total participants, they found that plasma NT1 was specifically elevated in AD cases compared to controls, whereas NFL was elevated in AD and non-AD dementia cases compared to controls. They also found that baseline measures of NT1 in patients who progressed to AD dementia were elevated, which was not the case for total tau measured using Quanterix or Roche assays. The AUC for the NT1 assay, discriminating between AD and normal controls, was 0.85. Overall, it seems that plasma NT1 is a specific biomarker for AD that can be detected early in disease progression and may be useful as an early biomarker. Switching gears and getting into a segment on lipids and metabolites as biomarkers, we have our fourth paper of the episode titled Exploration of Plasma Lipids in Mild Cognitive Impairment Due to Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Berglund and last author High, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Using mass spectrometry, this group analyzed the plasma lipid profile of 261 patients divided into three groups, cognitively healthy controls, amyloid positive MCI, and amyloid negative MCI. The authors specifically looked at the cross-sectional differences between the groups and the ability of plasma lipids to inform on cognitive test scores two years later. Converging with results from other studies, they found that sphingomyelin concentrations, and specifically sphingomyelin D43-2, were lower in amyloid-positive MCI patients compared to both controls and amyloid-negative MCI patients. They also found that no plasma lipids were associated with cognitive test performance after two years or at baseline. So short and sweet, this study reinforces the dysregulation of sphingomyelins in AD. Next up is the fifth paper of the episode, which is called Plasma Lipids Are Associated with White Matter Microstructural Changes and Axonal Degeneration. This is by first author Iriondo and last author Martinez Lage, published in Brain Imaging Behavior. So building on previous work establishing that dyslipidemia, or an abnormal amount of lipids in the blood, is a risk factor for AD and dementia, this group looked at the association between plasma lipids and white matter microstructure. The group assessed 273 healthy adults using diffusion tensor imaging and also measured neurofilament light in CSF as another marker of axonal injury. They found that LDL cholesterol and triglycerides had a negative association with axial diffusivity, so possibly reflecting axonal damage, and that LDL moderated the relationship between CSF neurofilament light and axial diffusivity in several brain regions. They also found that HDL cholesterol levels were positively correlated with axial diffusivity. All of their associations were independent of APOE genotype, blood pressure, and the use of statins. Overall, the authors concluded that plasma lipids are associated with white matter microstructural changes and axonal degeneration reinforcing their role as a risk factor for AD and related dementias. Moving on to the sixth paper of the episode, we have a metabolomics paper titled Peripheral Serum Metabolomic Profiles Inform Central Cognitive Impairment. This is by first author Wang and last author Jia, published in Scientific Reports. To investigate metabolic changes underlying AD, this group used 566 serum samples, of which 109 had matched brain samples, to identify metabolites that could track with neuropathology and cognitive impairment. The authors found that levels of six metabolites, which were glycolithicolate, petrosilinic acid, linoleic acid, myristic acid, palmitic acid, palmitoleic acid, and the ratio of deoxycholate to choate, 
were significantly different in both the postmortem brain and the serum samples between diagnostic groups. They also found that three metabolic pathways, which were primary bile acid synthesis, fatty acid biosynthesis, and biosynthesis of unsaturated fatty acids, were significantly dysregulated in the MCI and AD groups. Interestingly, the authors also found significant associations between these metabolites and metabolic pathways with cognitive performance, neurofibrillary tangles, and amyloid plaque burden. This data was then used to generate machine learning models that could differentiate between those who were cognitively impaired and predict who would experience cognitive impairment later in life reasonably well, with AUCs between 0.73 and 0.80 for the models. This work demonstrates the utility of metabolomics in the context of AD and dementia, and further reinforces the role of dysregulated metabolism in the pathology. So that wraps up our section on lipids and metabolites. Now on to a segment focused on nucleic acids as blood biomarkers. For our seventh paper of the episode, we have one titled Microrna Predicts Cognitive Performance in Healthy Older Adults. This is by first author Goulet and last author Cohen, published in Neurobiology of Aging. This study used machine learning to investigate the utility of miRNA as blood-based biomarkers for age-related cognitive decline. This was a retrospective study using data from 115 older individuals that were recruited through previous studies and had plasma miRNA profiling already done. So using a random forest regression, the authors found that combining miRNA profiles with data on brain volume, comorbid conditions, and demographic variables generated the best model for predicting cognitive performance. Notably, they found that three miRNAs, which were MIR145P, MIR1973P, and MIR5013P, were ranked highest as predictors of cognitive measures. The study also found several novel miRNAs that seem to be linked to age and other cognitive functions, so check out the paper for full details. Overall, the study reinforces the utility of miRNA as a blood biomarker. The next paper is our eighth paper of the episode, which is called Plasma Cell-Free DNA Methylation Marks for Episodic Memory Impairment, a Pilot Twin Study. This is by first author Konki and last author Lund, published in Scientific Reports. So I'm sure at least a few of you listening are like me and don't really have a good concept of what cell-free DNA methylation really means, um, so I figured I'd reiterate what I found from a quick search. So, DNA from dying cells can leak into plasma, and this was coined as circulating cell-free DNA. Once this is isolated, you can look at epigenetic modifications like methylation in the DNA, and that's what was done here. So given that circulating cell-free DNA methylation markers were gaining traction in monitoring types of cancer, this group set out to see if these changes could also provide insight into AD. The authors figured that since cells die in neurodegeneration as well, perhaps some of this DNA is released into the plasma and changes in methylation may be detected. So after that long intro spiel, in this study, the authors used a cohort of seven pairs of twins to investigate whether changes in cell-free DNA methylation could distinguish between the twins who developed dementia. The group used a genome-wide bisulfate sequencing method for the analysis of the cell-free DNA methylation from plasma, but they determined that this method was not optimal for comparing cell-free DNA methylation due to the low genomic coverage. Ultimately, the group found no significant markers associated with episodic memory performance in the twin cohort, 
but that doesn't completely rule out the utility of this kind of analysis. Sticking with nucleic acids for one last paper, our ninth paper of the episode is titled Identifying Blood Transcriptome Biomarkers of Alzheimer's Disease Using Transgenic Mice. This is by first author Ochi and last author Uneo, published in Molecular Neurobiology. So just like they say in the title, this study used a transgenic mouse model to identify candidate blood biomarkers for AD. Specifically, they used the three times transgenic AD mouse model for the study and compared both blood and hippocampal gene expression, reflected by mRNA, to control mice at different ages. Using network and functional analyses, the group found that differentially expressed genes between the two types of mice pointed towards the immune system and neuroinflammation. Specifically, they found five novel gene transcripts, which were CDKN2A, APOBEC3, MAGI2, PARP3, and CASS4, that were significantly increased with age, and their expression in the blood was correlated with expression in the hippocampus, only in AD model mice. The group also found that APOBEC3 and PARP3 showed similar changes in expression in human postmortem AD brain tissue, which reinforced these findings. That paper caps off the nucleic acid segment and marks the midpoint in this episode, so we will take a quick break here. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, welcome back. We'll get right back into it with protein biomarkers from other pathways, including inflammation, coagulation, and cell signaling. First up here is the 10th paper of this episode, and it's titled Association Between Anti-Inflammatory Interleukin-10 and Executive Function in African-American Women at Risk for Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Patel and last author Hackney, published in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology. This study examined 33 African-American women with a parental history of AD to determine whether normal or elevated plasma levels of the cytokine interleukin-10, or IL-10, are associated with changes in executive function and short-term memory. The authors measured inflammatory biomarkers, executive function, and visuospatial short-term memory tests. They found that the group with elevated IL-10 performed worse on the trail-making test, which is a test of visual attention and task switching, and that there were moderate effects in inhibition, set switching, and body position spatial memory. There were significant differences between the groups in the levels of other inflammatory markers, such as IL-7 and interferon gamma. There were also some effects of interferon gamma, IL-9, and IL-10 levels with other cognitive tests, but check the paper for details. The authors concluded that based on their sample of African-American women at risk of AD, Interleukins may lead to impairment in some aspects of executive function and short-term memory by inducing inflammation. So sticking with inflammation, we have the 11th paper of this episode, which is titled Evaluation of Serum Galactin-3 Levels at Alzheimer's Patients by Stages, a Preliminary Report. This is by first author Yazar and last author Chien, published in Acta Neurologica Belgica. So, galactin-3 is a protein intertwined with the innate immune response, known to play roles in binding pathogens and affecting other immune cells. 
The protein is found in peripheral immune cells and in microglia, making it of potential interest in the context of neuroinflammation. The authors of this study wanted to shed some light on microglial activation in AD, and they used serum galactin 3 levels as a proxy. In their study of 118 people, 57 of which had AD and 61 were controls, they found that serum galactin 3 levels were significantly higher in the AD group, and the levels further increased with increasing AD stage based on the clinical dementia rating. While this was a very small study, the data indicate that this may be a marker associated with AD. The 12th paper of this episode focuses on coagulation, and it's titled, Increased Levels of Coagulation Factor 6 in Plasma Are Related to Alzheimer's Disease Diagnosis. This is by first author Bajik and last author Kozvik, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So there's a growing body of work that suggests that the clotting cascade is involved in AD to some extent. It definitely has a more clear role in the context of stroke, but this bleeds through into some other types of dementia as well. Forgive the pun. But building on this body of work, the group set out to look at the relationship between members of the coagulation and anticoagulation pathways with cognitive decline in AD. They measured a series of clotting factors in plasma samples in a total of 635 patients. 192 were cognitively normal controls, 123 had mild cognitive impairment, and 320 had a clinical diagnosis of probable AD. As suggested in their title, they found that coagulation factor 6 was significantly increased in the AD group compared to the other two groups. They also found that increases in factors 4 and 6 were associated with reduced cognitive function. Overall, this reinforces the need to continue to evaluate the clotting cascade in the context of AD and dementia. So next up was a pretty interesting paper that went all the way from in vitro work to clinical biomarker work. This was a huge collaborative effort from over 50 authors, and it's titled Dikoff-1 Overexpression in Vitro Nominates Candidate Blood Biomarkers Relating to Alzheimer's Disease Pathology. This is the 13th paper of the episode, and it's by first author Shi and last author Lovestone, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Previous work has suggested that the protein Dikoff-1, or DKK-1 as I'll call it, which inhibits WNT signaling, is involved in amyloid-induced toxicity. Building off of this previous work, this big collaborative effort set out to investigate the effect of DKK1 expression on the expression of other proteins, and whether these downstream proteins were altered in clinical samples. The authors first used SOMA-scan, which are aptamer capture arrays, to reveal the protein signature of HEC293 cells overexpressing DKK1. Then they used the same assay to evaluate human plasma from two different cohorts, each with about 700 patients. In vitro, they found a 100 protein signature from the DKK1 overexpression and found that subsets of proteins from the signature, along with age and APOE genotype, were able to distinguish between AD pathology in clinical samples based on the ATN framework. For those of you who don't know about the ATN framework, it classifies the AD pathology into categories based on positivity for three factors, A, which is amyloid, T, which is tau, and N, which is neurodegeneration. Positivity for all three indicates full-blown AD. 
So anyway, back to this paper. When incorporated into the models with age and ApoE genotype, the proteins from the DKK1 signature were able to distinguish categories of the ATN framework with AUCs between 0.72 and 0.88. They also found that albumin and complement 3, two of the proteins from the signature, were associated with cognitive score and AD diagnosis in both cohorts. Now on to a section focused on synaptic proteins. The 14th paper of this episode is titled Gene Expression of Serotonergic Markers in Peripheral Blood Mononuclear Cells of Patients with Late-Onset Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Nishin and last author Angari, published in a journal called Helion. Since dysfunction of the serotonergic system seems to be intertwined with AD, This group hypothesized that markers of the serotonergic pathway could serve as biomarkers for AD. In this cross-sectional study with 30 patients with late-onset AD and 30 age-matched controls, the authors used qPCR to measure mRNA from members of the serotonergic pathway in peripheral blood mononuclear cells. Their key targets were 5-HT receptors 2 and 3A, the 5-HT catalytic enzyme, and monoamine oxidase, or MAO. They found that mRNA expression levels of both 5-HT receptors and of monoamine oxidase were significantly lower in patients with AD compared to controls. Ultimately, this data further implicates the serotonergic downregulation in late-onset AD and sheds light on the ability of easily accessible peripheral blood mononuclear cells as a means to measure this. Of course, these findings will need to be validated in larger cohorts, but this is pretty interesting stuff nonetheless. Next up is another synaptic protein-based biomarker paper, and it's called Blood Neuronal Exosomal Synaptic Proteins Predict Alzheimer's Disease at the Asymptomatic Stage. This is the 15th paper of this episode by first author Gia and last author Gia, published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. Here, the authors were very rigorous, using a multi-stage cross-sectional study to evaluate exosomal synaptic proteins as candidate biomarkers to predict AD. The preliminary discovery stage of this multi-stage study involved about 20 patients per group with either AD, amnesic MCI, or cognitively healthy controls. The subsequent validation stage included more participants at about 70 per group, And the final confirmation stages included one study with 160 patients with preclinical AD and 160 cognitively normal controls, and the other included 59 patients with familial AD mutations and 62 with no known mutations. So lots of different cohorts here. Pretty rigorous evaluation of the biomarkers. They found that levels of growth-associated protein 43 Neurogranin, SNAP25, and synaptotegmin-1 were significantly lower in AD than in controls, and that the exosomal biomarker levels had moderate correlations with the levels of the proteins in CSF. When incorporated together into a model, the exosomal synaptic markers had an AUC of between 0.87 and 0.89 to detect AD 5 to 7 years before cognitive impairment. Of course, with all of the cohorts they used in this study, there was tons of data in this paper, so definitely go check it out for more information. So now on to the last segment of this episode, in which I have two big data papers and one new method. 
Starting off with a paper that I'm almost certain I covered in another episode, but I couldn't find it in any of my scripts, so maybe it was a fevered dream of mine. Anyway, this one is titled Large-Scale Informatic Analysis to Algorithmically Identify Blood Biomarkers of Neurological Damage. This is the 16th paper of this episode, and it's by first author O'Connell and last author Chang, published in PNAS. Here, the authors sifted through mRNA expression data from almost 12,000 human specimens, including brain tissue, to evaluate over 17,000 different genes for potential as biomarkers for neurological damage. Through analyzing the expression of the genes across the body and the brain, they were able to tease out candidate blood biomarkers to reflect neurological damage. Importantly, this paper wasn't solely focused on AD, and they actually cast a wide net to identify candidate biomarkers for other sources of neurological damage, like TBI, stroke, and MS. Once they had ranked the genes from the expression data, they measured the levels of the encoded proteins in the blood of patients with a wide range of neurological disorders. They found several novel candidate biomarkers, including myelin-associated oligodendrocyte basic protein, or MOBP, which they evaluated across conditions for sensitivity and specificity. They also challenged the utility of other known biomarkers, like total tau and UCHL1, because they found that their expression was not restricted to the brain, so their ability to reflect brain changes was actually quite poor. I'm just scratching the surface here on this really data-rich paper, so definitely be sure to check out the whole thing. There was lots of interesting insight on AD and insight into other conditions as well. Next up is the 17th paper of the episode, which is titled Screening and Identification of Potential Peripheral Blood Biomarkers for Alzheimer's Disease Based on Bioinformatics Analysis. This is by first author Wang and last author Wang, published in Medical Science Monitor. This was another very data science-heavy paper that used publicly available AD gene expression datasets to screen for and identify new blood biomarkers for AD. They identified 5,042 differentially expressed genes, which were from four main processes. First one was oligosaccharide lipid intermediate biosynthesis. Next was cyclin binding, then signal pathways regulating pluripotency of ubiquitin-mediated proteolysis, and finally extracellular matrix receptor interactions. Through a series of computational and statistical methods, they also identified main hub genes from these pathways which included MMP9 and von Willebrand factor, among others. They suggest that these hub genes are closely related with AD and cognitive impairment, and may be of potential use as biomarkers. Capping off this episode, I have a new method for detecting newly synthesized proteins in blood, and this paper is titled Optimization of Protocols for Detection of De Novo Protein Synthesis in Whole Blood Samples via Azide Alkyne Cycloaddition. This is the 18th and final paper for this episode by first author Bowling and last author Bhattacharya, published in the Journal of Proteome Research. While not directly related to AD, this new method focuses on detecting newly synthesized proteins in blood, which could be of potential use in biomarker searches. Specifically, this method detects acute changes in proteomes by incubating freshly harvested blood with what they call a selectively reactive non-natural amino acid, called AHA, which gets incorporated into newly synthesized proteins. Then the authors use something called click chemistry to tag any proteins with the incorporated AHA, which indicates that they were newly synthesized. 
The authors worked up this assay using rodent blood and were able to detect the newly synthesized tagged proteins with mass spec. The authors suggest that this assay will be useful for quantifying translational changes and identifying differentially expressed proteins, which could potentially be of use in Alzheimer's disease. And that's all for August 2020 AD blood biomarkers. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this content and want to be a part of our mission of making published findings useful and accessible to scientists, we'd love to have you. We've already expanded our team to 23 members since we started with four back in March, but we're always looking for more keen and knowledgeable volunteers. Send us an email with your CV and let us know what you'd be interested in helping with. Could be sorting or summarizing abstracts, scripting and hosting episodes, advertising or outreach. We have loads of jobs. I'd also like to shout out the whole team for making this possible. And as always, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.